Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. That, that's the biggest thing that I see with a lot of individuals. Like, I mean, you, you can even research it online and it's like, okay, make sure you cook your wild game to a well done to make sure it kills everything. It was like, well, you just killed the game. That's, that's what you did. You just completely destroyed it. Um, You're listening to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 111, Wild Game Cooking 101. First off, happy holidays and happy new year to everyone, and welcome to season five of this podcast show. Today, we're going to be talking with Paul Rhodes. Paul is the founder of Sizzlin' Arrow Outdoors and the host of a podcast by that exact same name. He's also a former chef. So while, what are we going to be talking about during this episode? Basically, we're going to be talking about, real quick, how to procure some venison, how to process it down, how to store it, and some do's and don'ts when cooking. Paul being a former chef, myself being a culinary high school teacher, uh, we have a little bit of knowledge in this aspect, and we want to share what we think and our opinions on this matter and then towards the end we will share our favorite recipes for venison so make sure you stick around hey everybody on the line today paul rhodes paul how you doing today i'm doing good jason how are you man oh, i'm doing great uh, happy holidays to you uh this is uh, gonna be the first episode of the new year uh, for 2022, hopefully better than the last couple of years, right? <laughs> With everything going on. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers one. crossed, yeah. definitely. Um, so what I want to talk about today, and, and as I mentioned in the intro that everyone just heard, uh, I figured it would be really good to start the year off with how to cook wild game meat. Uh, you know, you're a hunter, I'm a hunter, uh, a lot of the listeners are hunters or are interested in it. And I feel like even if you are like myself that grew up hunting, uh, grew up hunting family, game meat was cooked all the time. Uh, it wasn't always necessarily the best like foot forward for that game meat, the way it was cooked, right? Yeah. Uh, the old school way sometimes is great, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's some great uh, old school recipes out there. Uh, but then, you know, we now know a little more how wild game works and um, how it reacts to heat and things like that. So, so the hope today was basically to talk about favorite recipes, all that kind of thing. Start the new year off. For the most part, at this point, everyone's seasons are pretty much over. There might be a couple stragglers out there, but what do we do with this game meat now to, you know, sort of give it our best foot forward and really highlight the great textures, the great flavors that we can utilize this game meat with. And I thought, who would be a better person to join me on this podcast? Uh, you know, as myself being a culinary teacher, as you being a former chef, uh, 
I felt like this was this could be a great conversation between the two of us. So before we start, I want to talk real quick. Uh, you're the founder of Sizzlinero Outdoors. What is Sizzlinero Outdoors and sort of what's that mission? What is your your purpose with that company? Yeah, for sure, Jason. Uh, thank you for the question. So really, Sizzlin Arrow, uh, we're, we're a newer uh, organization, but what we focus on primarily is consulting individuals on wild game harvesting and food preparation. So, I mean, we, we've got a very large scope, and that's just really summing it up into a nutshell. But um, I mean, we've, you know, I've got Sizzlin Arrow podcast, uh, I've got my uh, local uh, things that I do here. I, I take um, new upcoming hunters out on one-on-one uh, -on -one guided hunts, which I've got three of those lined up for this week, which is going to be fun. I've got a 10-year-old boy coming along with me on a hunt, and I've got um, two first-time hunters going out with me as well. So um, yeah, it's a lot of fun just watching people grow and teaching them the tricks of the trade. And then also showing them what to do with that animal after that animal has been harvested and just how to uh, field prep it, how to bring it back, how to cut it up yourself, how to package it, how to cook it, and just really utilize the animal to the best of our ability, you know, whether it's, you know, using the bones for stock or um, saving the inside, like the heart, the liver, um, you know, use those for different recipes. Uh, dehydrating the lungs, uh, the trachea for dog chews, stuff like that. Um, there's even a place here, Hunters Feeding the Hungry, that do, that makes gloves for um, uh, veterans. So uh, disabled veterans and stuff, they'll make gloves out of the hide. So I'm working on connecting with them and seeing if we can work out to where we take, you know, the leftover doe hides or the back end of the bucks that are not being uh, utilized for the mounts and whatnot. But um, a lot, a lot of great things. And we have a few other things we're working on the pipes, but I'm not going to mention those quite yet. Um, cause you know, it's still, still in the works and we're not quite sure how that's going to pan out. So, um, I'll definitely let everyone know as soon as we have a, for sure on the new things coming. Yeah, man, that's great. I, I love, uh, the idea of sort of helping people through that whole process, right. Especially people that aren't, um, you know, that haven't grown up with it, right? Because that mm -hmm. that's one of those barriers to entry for hunting is what do I do? How do I do it? Um, and then, you know, once you get that animal down, now what do I do? You yeah. know, I, I always say like, okay, now I say to myself, every time that I shoot a deer, now the work starts, yep, right? Like the, the easy part is over. Not that hunting is easy, but the easy part is over. Now the work starts of, of getting it out of the woods, breaking it down. Um, and then the fun part, will eventually start, which is, you know, for me cooking it and, and sharing yeah. it with other people or eating it myself, you know, that's, that's always a great time. So, you know, let's start with that sort of procurement aspect of wild game meat, you know, in the United States and Canada, uh, you're not allowed to purchase wild game meat. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we have no market hunting. So how do people go about procuring it uh, which I know could be an entire podcast in and of itself, multiple episodes. So uh, let's just go with like the the quick, easy, like if someone's interested, what should they do? Okay, gotcha. So there's a lot of, a lot of different ways you can go about this. I mean, really the easiest way, if you don't want to get your hands dirty, if you just want to try it to see if it's even something that you like, I guarantee one of your neighbors, one of your coworkers, somebody that you know, 
hunts. So, um, or somebody that you know knows somebody that hunts, and you could probably have ask them if they can get you a little bit of venison or whatever wild game meat they have. And more than likely, most sportsmen are happy to share a little bit of their meat. I mean, you may get ground meat, you may get roast meat. Um, some are very uh, generous and give you some backstrap if uh, they want, but that. I, I usually don't share my back straps. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you I, the ground meat. <laughs> listen, I don't. I don't. I'll, I'll be very honest and I'm selfish. <laughs> the only way I'm sharing back strap is if I'm cooking it for you and we are eating together. Exactly. Exactly. But um, so the other one is if you know someone that does hunt they can you can ask them to take you out um of course in most states i believe it's every state they require a hunter safety uh, certificate some states are a little more stringent like some states you have to have your hunter safety card then you have to have your archers hunter safety card so you have a few different ones north carolina is just the one and done um so you can get that and then go out and uh, try to harvest one yourself um i mean one reason why we are doing what we're doing is I'm, I grew up in Wyoming and I did a lot of Western big game hunting, mule deer, antelope, a little bit of elk. Um, but that, that's a whole different animal than whitetail hunting. So when I moved out east and started whitetail hunting, I felt like I was a brand new hunter. I, I had no idea really how to go about it because mine was used to spot and stock and you know you you can see for miles and you see them and you go out and get them here you got to work on the ambush type thing so really where i'm going with that is with new hunters if you have someone that can take you uh out if you don't know really what to do you know it, it can be anywhere from getting information on right clothing um right equipment how to prep and seal your clothing to keep it set free. Um, and then of course, going out and looking for the spots where the deer are traveling through, best place to set up stands, how soon to set up stands in the year. Cameras help with that too, but um, I mean, it, it's a process. It, it definitely is a process. And if you have a mentor that you can go out with, and I'm, I know Jason, I'm sure you've taken a few new hunters out there and, you know, I'm, I'm always open and I'm sure Jason is too, but um, I, I'm never opposed to answering an email or, you know, taking a phone call if anyone has any questions. Yeah. Trying to get uh, new people out there that are interested. That's something you know, just like you, it, it's a passion for me, right? Like I want to mm -hmm. share my passion of hunting with other people. And if someone shows interest, uh, I'm all for it. Um, actually just this year, uh, one of my coworkers that I helped, uh, sort of not as much as I would have liked because of COVID and everything going on, but, mm -hmm. uh, he was able to harvest his, his first year this year, which was great. Uh, and then, um, I was actually telling another coworker that story and that coworker decided, you know, he, I've been thinking about for a while, Hey, maybe this year's the year that that I give it a shot. So, um, you know, it, like I said, it's a, you know, hunting's a passion of mine and I like to be able to share that passion with other people, uh, just as, as you do, obviously, right. Mm -hmm. You, you started a whole company based around it. So, you yeah. know, um, <laughs> it, yeah, that is, like I said, that's in a nutshell, right? Like that is how you get you base. And I love the fact that you sort of mentioned two ways to go about it, right. You can mm -hmm. either have a, a friend or a coworker, someone that already hunts, give some to you, right? Like you can't, by law, you can't pay them for it. Yep. You can't trade services for it. Um, they can give it to you just as a sort of donation out of their own good heart, right? And then you can go ahead and, and, and cook that meat. Uh, or you can go out and get it yourself. Like I said, 
whole big thing that we could talk about for days. Uh, So let's just move on to the aspect of you have now harvested an animal. You've now killed an animal. It could be a white-tailed deer. It could be small game. It could be a bear, right? Mm -hmm. As long as it's a legal harvest, uh, we now need to go through the the process of breaking it down, figuring out what we're going to, you know, getting it out of the woods, all that kind of stuff. Um, Instead of going through like step-by-step, like I, hopefully people know and i guess if you don't i'll go through it real quick you have to remove the entrails out of that animal you need to remove the animal from the field or the woods right if it's a pheasant it's pretty easy throw it in your game bag you can walk out Um, if it's a deer either drag it out or even a bear you could put it in a side by side and drive it out if you have access or uh, you know a lot of western hunters which i'm sure you did (laughs) in your in, in years past, before you move these, you know, you quarter it, you sort of break it down so that you can put it, you know, in a backpack or, you know, on your pack and, and sort of pack it out that way. So that's the general process. But let's talk about like, what are some things that you like to do to try to ensure that that meat stays as good as possible when you're trying to get it out of the field? For sure. So um, really with the meat and the the way that I look at it to keep the meat as fresh and as tender and just untouched as possible starts from knocking the deer down. So really, if you have an animal that's not stressed and you make a good shot and the animal drops right where he's at, or if you're hunting with a bow and arrow and he doesn't even know he's been hit, um, there's no stress. There's nothing running through the meat, through the blood or anything like that. So, um, you're going to have a better tasting meat that way. So once you get the animal down one, you know, the thing that I like to do, and I'm sure most hunters are the same, you got to get those entrails out as soon as you possibly can. So one, that's going to cut down on the weight when you're dragging it out. And two, it's going to let that inside cavity and everything cool down. So the meat's going to start to cool down more so. Uh, quicker than uh, if it has the entrails inside of it. Um, I've got one property to where the owner doesn't want me to leave the entrails in the field. So what I do with that is I take a trash bag with me and I'll uh, gut it out in the, in the field. I'll throw the guts in the trash bag and then I will make two trips. So I'll take the deer back and then I'll come back and get the trash bag. So, you know, just to out of respect for the landowner, you want to make sure that you follow their wishes. So once we get it out of the field, um, you know, dragging it, honestly, if you can get it off of the ground and not drag it through the dirt and the twigs and um, all that stuff is better. So, but generally, even when you do drag it, you're only going to get a little bit on the kind of flank meat um, with that. So it's not a huge deal, but you know, out West, when you quarter it up, you need game bags, you need to cover that meat up, make sure it doesn't get dirt or anything on it. Um, with the hearts, I'll take a Ziploc bag and livers and I'll put that into the bag and just throw that inside the cavity as I'm dragging it out. That way I don't have a whole bunch of stuff taking up my hands. Um, trying to think, really as far as field care that's that's about it just getting it out as soon as you can um you know getting it cleaned up as soon as you can and getting hung as soon as you can once you get it back to the house and get it hung up the best thing the thing i like to do is to get that hide off um i don't want to keep the hide on there because it tends to kind of the flavor and it may just be a mental thing or maybe i'm just 
uh, putting everything to antelope, but um, the hide tends to uh, soak, the meat tends to soak up flavor of the hide after it's been sitting on there. Um, so I, I like to get that off. Yeah, it does dry out the meat a little bit if you let it hang for too long. So what I like to do is let it hang for a day, depending on weather. If it's not too hot, I'll let it hang for 24 hours and then I'll quarter it up and throw it into a cooler on ice. And I don't put the deer directly on the ice. I'll put ice, I won't take it out of the bags. I'll put it in the bottom of the cooler, put a trash bag over that, put the deer on top of that and then put another trash bag over the deer and put three to four more bags of ice on top of that. And then I'll drain it probably once to one to two times a day. And what that is, it gives you a little bit of moisture and it doesn't dry out your meat. Yeah. So uh, the idea of, of getting the hide off, the reason why I, I, the reason why I, in my head, like to get that hide off quickly is the idea that that hide is there as a, basically as a, as a coat, right. Mm -hmm. For, for the animal. So I don't know, I don't know how much actual flavor would get imparted like from the hide, but I look at it as, you know, that whole hind quarter, the quickest way to cool it down is to take that jacket off. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if we want to try to, to cool that meat down, we need to do everything we can to, to cool that meat down. Um, you know, to do it the absolute quickest way possible, it really, it would be to debone all the meat, right? Because even those bones are going to help hold in some of that, that heat as well. But that's, I don't know that that's like vitally important unless you are, you know, backcountry hunting um, and it's, you know, warm out. Uh, I, I, I'm right with you. I try to get, you know, I, I guess let's try to focus more on, on venison at this point, right? Deer. Mm -hmm. um, I try to get it out of, the, out of the woods as quickly as I can, right? I don't want to yep. let it sit there. Um, and when I do that, you know, I sort of, I, I think about the weather for the next day or so. Uh, and if it's, you know, when you think about that, it has to, it's not just, you know, the temperature at night or, you know, you have to look at the temperature through each hour. And if it's mm -hmm. going to be over 40 degrees, uh, I like to take a bag of ice and actually throw it into the chest cavity, right. Yeah. Just to give that extra. Um, and then something that I think has really helped the final flavor of our game meat lately, uh, compared to, you know, years past growing up hunting. I also think about the sun as well, right? Like if it's 40 degrees and that deer's sitting in the sun while it's hanging, that sun's going to be warming up that meat. Uh, yep. So if you can keep it in the shade, that's also going to help as well. Um, I don't do the cooler method once I break it down. Uh, I mm -hmm. actually have a little refrigerator that I, that I got um, that was decommissioned at work that I have here in the basement. And I put the quarters you know, in game bags and hang them in that refrigerator. Uh, it doesn't keep it quite as moist. I do get a little of that dried out exterior. Yep. Um, why do you think it's important to, to let that meat age a little bit? Like, uh, because you could, if you wanted to just cut it up and package it right, you know, that day that you shot it, if you shot early enough, yep. um, do you feel like it's important to age? And, and if so, how long, why do you do it? That kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, I was actually going to touch on, on the bones when you mentioned about moaning it out and everything so you know with that <clears throat> and that kind of goes into with the aging so you're going to want to keep the bones inside the the meat or keep everything intact because what happens is after that animal dies the kind of rigor mortis kicks in so if you pull it off of the bone it kind of contracts so your meat's going to be a lot tougher than if you would let it rest on the bone for you know, two three four days you know so you definitely want to keep keep the meat on the bone as much as you can 
uh, and let it rest that way or hang that way. Um, now, as far as aging, I don't age mine um, as much as a lot of people do. Uh, kind of the going aging here, at least with processors, is about two weeks, uh, two week hang time, you know, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I prefer to do mine about four days, maybe five at the most. Um, and I've found that it doesn't give it a very pronounced strong flavor so you don't get that i guess you could a lot of people call it gamey flavor but um it's just the matured flavor of the meat after it's been hanging you know i i prefer to have a little cleaner flavor uh within my game meat and i've never had an issue no matter what type of animal it was uh, whether it's mule deer whitetail uh antelope elk everything uh as long as it's you know taken care of properly and not let get wet or sit out in the sun like you mentioned um it's always been good on about a four to five day aging yeah i think that four to five days is is important because you mentioned a rigor mortis process right where that mm -hmm. deer is going to get stiff you have to let it get through that process or that meat's going to be extremely not extremely, but it's going to be tougher than it normally would be. Yeah. Um, I look at the aging process less for building flavor and more for just allowing that meat to sort of tenderize itself because some enzymes will start breaking it down. Mm -hmm. um, the only time that I've ever felt like there was a strong gamey flavor to any of my venison was when it was not handled properly in the field or as good as, as typical. Um, yeah. so, you know, that might be because it took me a little longer to find the deer. Uh, that could be that, uh, we didn't really pay as close attention to the outside temperature as we really should have. Or like I said, that we used to let our deer hang in the sun and we didn't think about that. Um, you know, that kind of thing tends to lend itself to that sort of stronger flavor in my mind, uh, as opposed to letting it age for a full two weeks. I'm sure there are some different flavors, uh, two weeks compared to four days. Um, yeah. you know, when I say aging, you know, for me, I don't want to sit here and, and, act like I'm standing on a pedestal here and saying like, you have to age your meat this long. Uh, my, my meat, my meat ages as long as it needs to, for me to have time to be able to process it down and, and put it in the freezer. Sometimes that's three or four days. Sometimes that's two weeks. Uh, there's, there's no hard, fast rule for me. It's just purely when am I going to have time to break this down into cuts? And if, like I said, if that ends up being two weeks, then it's two weeks. Uh, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it's more of a timing issue for me, as opposed to trying to get on my high horse and say, if you don't age it this long, it's not going to be any good. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and really, like I said, it's more about just trying to get that meat as tender as possible, because listen, these are wild animals. They're moving around constantly. This isn't the, uh, you know, grain fed beef that's, you know, barely walking around and, you know, and there's less fat and all that stuff. So it's going to be uh, a little bit tougher of a texture, just naturally. If we can age a little and, and let those enzymes break down that meat a little bit, it's going to help keep that tenderness. And real quick, I got to touch on this gamey flavor deal. That's something that just, <laughs> oh, man, oh boy, here we go, man. Listen, it just, it irks me anytime mm -hmm. that someone says they don't like venison because it's gamey. Um, gamey is this catch-all term that has no meaning whatsoever. What yeah. you are, what, I want everyone to listen real quick to this. <laughs> what you are tasting is flavor. Our palates in our current modern society are so bland. It yep. is unbelievable. 
um, you know, thinking about beef, most beef you're eating from a cow that is under two years old. Uh, and when you have an animal that that's, that is that young, it's not going to have any flavor, right? Most chicken that people eat now is from a chicken that's less than six months old. There's no flavor there, right? Like we have to add all these flavors to get, you know, add spices, add all these things to something to make it taste good because the meat itself has virtually no flavor. Mm. The gamey flavor is just that it's flavor. It's not bad. It's good. That that's, you know, that is what tastes good in the meat. Right. Yes. Right, Paul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, there, there are, like you said, depending on how it is prepared in the field or how it was taken care of, there's going to be some flavors. Now, if you get a gut shot animal, that's not gamey. That's, that's gut. Yeah, that's gross. Um, but, you know, with like, like you said, with the meat that we're eating in the grocery stores and everything, um, I, I just challenge everyone listening, if you don't do this already, just next time you go to the grocery store and you pick up let's say something out of the freezer section, look at the ingredients in that and look at how much stuff is put into that meat or into that um, lasagna or whatever it may be that you grab. All that stuff in there is what makes it taste better. With wild game, salt, pepper, a little bit of the aging uh, flavor or just the flavor of the meat itself is all you need. And it is going to be the most delicious thing that you've ever tasted. And you just got to prepare it the same way that you would beef or lamb. I mean, really it's red meat. So just prepare it any, any way you would any other red meat. Um, I'm trying, there was something I was going to hit on and I completely, completely left me. It's all right. We'll come back to it. Cause yeah. I want to move, I want to move on to the sort of processing aspect. Cause that's the, that's the next step, right? Like yep. we've gotten it. Um, we've aged it or dropped it off at a processor, right? There's times where I've done that. Um, oh yeah, me too. One of the deer that I shot this year, I dropped off the processor just because I, I looked at my schedule and was like, I will have no time. This meat will go bad before I can get it in the freezer. So this is my only option. Uh, drop it off, get it deboned. That was just one less step that I, I needed to do um, to give me some time. So now I have this meat and I need to, to package it up and I need to store it, right? Mm -hmm. When you shoot, especially a deer, like you're not gonna be able to eat all that meat before it goes bad if we just put it in the refrigerator, right? Yeah. So we have to freeze it. Um, so my first question is, what do you recommend for people to store the meat so that it can be frozen and it can be fresh, you know, months or maybe even a year later? Gotcha. So what I do personally is I, I, I vacuum seal everything. Um, so that way I get all the air and everything out of it. And it's going to keep a little bit longer than if you, in, at least in my opinion, if you wrap it with paper. Um, there's nothing wrong with wrapping it with paper. I know there's a lot of individuals that do that. Uh, processors do that as well. Um, but I found that the flat vacuum seal bags, one, I can get more into the freezer. And then two, I can kind of position things uh, in a way to where it circulates the freezing air through it to where it freezes quicker. So really you want to get that meat vacuum seal, get the air out or wrapped up and then put into the freezer and get it frozen as soon as you possibly can. Um, you know, if you have, I, I tend to keep a big thing of paper towels and I pat dry everything that way there's no excess moisture in there that shouldn't be in there because the last thing you want is any kind of crystals or anything on the outside of it so um really very simple get the air out get it in the freezer get it frozen as soon as you possibly can 
Yeah. And the big thing is you want to, like you said, get it as fro. you want to get it frozen as quick as you can. So, I mean, in, in the perfect world, I would put this meat in a blast freezer, yeah. right? That, that just drops <laughs> it to, you know, free to beyond zeros, like super quick. Yeah. Those are expensive and oh, big yeah. and no one has those in their house. Uh, so your second best option then is going to be in a chest freezer or yeah. upright freezer. Your third option would be the freezer with your refrigerator, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, I mean, it's going to freeze it. It's just going to take longer. The reason why that's important, looking at this from a food science perspective, the longer it takes that meat to freeze, what, what you're freezing is not the meat itself. You're freezing the water, the moisture that's in that meat. The mm -hmm. longer it takes to freeze, the larger the ice crystals are going to form, right? Like as you freeze water to make ice cubes, it create, you know, it slowly happens and these little crystals form in there. The same thing's happening inside the meat. The longer it takes to freeze, the bigger those ice crystals are. And as those ice crystals form, they're ripping into the fibers of the meat, which is going to, if you would do it slow enough, or if you would freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw, you're creating this very mushy meat. So yeah. if we can do it very quickly, it helps to, re to retain the proper texture of that meat. I'm like you. I vacuum seal everything. I love my vacuum sealer. Uh, for Christmas, we, my wife and I just got a whole big box of, of more bags. Uh, we vacuum seal virtually everything. Yeah. Um, but in the past, we have done the, you know, wrap in, uh, you know, saran wrap, wrap in plastic wrap, and then freezer paper over top. And that works yep. good. It, it's mm -hmm. fine. Oh, yeah. Uh, the reason why I like the vacuum seal bags is because not on purpose, but I have lost a, a, you know, a bag in the freezer for three years and I decided, Hey, I'm going to cook it and I'm going to try it. And it was not as good as fresh. Right. But mm -hmm. it was still passable as edible, right. Yeah. It was still edible. Um, it just gives me a longer time to be able to enjoy that meat, especially since my wife doesn't eat a lot of venison. So if I'm shooting two deer, it's going to take me a full year to eat, you know, both of those deer. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that I have the best possible flavor and texture, you know, with that. Um, one more thing you, you mentioned those, the reason why you like to, to, um, do the, uh, vacuum seal is because of those ice crystals, right? That freezer mm -hmm. burn that we see, uh, on our frozen foods. Yeah. Uh, that is again, going sort of nerding out with food science here. That is literally <laughs> moisture being drawn out of that meat and yep. refreezing on the surface so again that's going to alter the texture uh if there's no air if there's no room no air drawing that out that's not going to happen right so you need to make sure even if you're using plastic wrap you need to really make sure you're wrapping that super tight getting as much of the air out as possible or vacuum sealing do you do any when you're doing this processing before you vacuum seal do you do any like pre-prep to any of the meat to um, sort of help make it easier when you go to cook it as far as building flavors on top of that game meat. Yeah, so, well, uh, when you mentioned pre-prepping, are you talking like pre-marinating or are you talking about just, uh, so I don't pre-marinate anything, um, but when I do process my animals, I, I get all the, 
silver skin, all that excess stuff that is not edible off the meat to where pretty much I can just take it, thaw it out in the fridge and then do whatever I want to do to it. Whether that's, you know, for the flank doing taco, like uh, marinating that in olive oil and jalapenos, cilantro, a um, little bit of vinegar and uh, let that sit for a couple of days. But yeah, I don't, I don't pre-marinate it. I find that it gives, um, I just, I'm not big on the texture if it's marinated for too long, um, especially if it's frozen marinated. Um, yeah, I just, I put it all in fresh and I just clean it up and that way I don't have to clean it when I pull it out. Yeah. So they're just to make my life a little easier before I go to cook. Right. So there's two things that I do um, sometimes, and it's not with every piece of meat. Uh, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll pre-salt and pepper or put some spices on it just so that it's there. Mm -hmm. So literally it's thawed and I can go ahead and cook it however I plan on doing it. Uh, the other thing I do sometimes I'll make that marinade, put it in the bag with the meat and then just very, very carefully vacuum seal that, that bag so that mm -hmm. once it, like I put it in the fridge and it's thawing, it's marinating as it's thawing and, and all that. So again, it's just like, because sometimes I'm, I'm not the best at like thinking ahead, like, yeah. oh, I need to get this out three days in advance because I need to marinate it for a day and a half type thing. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I do that, I always make sure to label that bag with what I intended to make. Because, okay. you know, if I have a roast that I put a very specific spice mixture on and then I, you know, and I'm planning to make like a glaze for it or something like that or a specific broth to cook it in with the Dutch oven. Um, you know, I don't want to forget that, right. And be like, Oh, what was I going to do with this? Uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll label that very specifically. Uh, here's, here's a big question that, that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years and I've experimented a little bit. So I'm curious on your thoughts before I share my experience, but ground meat, a lot of, a lot of deer, you know, a lot of venison, you know, trimmings, things like that, right. You grind it up. So you do, it doesn't go to waste. Do you grind and then freeze? or do you freeze and then grind and cook? So what I do is I grind and then freeze. So what I do is I get that meat as cold as I possibly can uh, before I grind it because you don't want it sticking to the, um, the metal when you're pushing it through. But um, yeah, I grind everything up. And with that, you know, I do pre-season some, you know, like the sausage, breakfast sausage, stuff like that. Um, but um yeah, I, I definitely grind it before and then freeze it after that because I, I like you, I, I don't have a whole lot of time. So if I pull it out and I plan to grind it, it's probably just going to sit in the fridge in cubes. So if I've got everything already pulled out, I just knock it all out in one false swoop, vacuum seal it, and then I'm good to go. Yeah, and you know, I feel like that's what most people do, and that's what I did, right? Um, mm -hmm. you know, for years and years, uh, I've started to experiment with just cubing up the meat. Uh, having just a little hand grinder that you you know has the handle on it, you you stick to the the countertop. Yep. Um, and I have to say, if I grind right before I cook, the texture seems to be a little bit better. Um, and yep. so I've gone that route because it really only takes me an extra five minutes, I'd say, to grind up that meat. Um, so that's mm -hmm. you know this last deer that I just packaged up. That that's what I did. I cubed it all. I weighed it out in, you know, the one pound increments, put it in the bags uh, and put them in the freezer. So I, I would recommend to everyone to do that. I know it's not always feasible, 
Um, but I, I also, it, it's a mind numbing experience for me to sit there with, you know, 20 pounds of meat and just grind and grind and grind. And, um, yeah. it, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the, the packaging process, right? Um, I'm not, I don't mm -hmm. do it enough that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to do this. So uh, to make that packaging process as quick as possible, that's definitely something that um, is high on my list. All right. I, I don't want to, I don't want to rush us too much, but at the same time, we need to get to the cooking part, right? Because yeah. venison's way different than beef. Um, even wild turkey is different than the turkey that you buy in the store. Oh, yeah. What, let's sort of focusing on just venison, just to keep this topic sort of the same. Like, what are some do's and don'ts with cooking venison that we need to sort of alter our mindset if we've only been cooking beef or we typically just know how to cook beef? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like the biggest pet peeve that I've got, uh, especially when it comes to venison steak, is overcooking it. That, that's the biggest thing that I see with a lot of individuals. Like, I mean, you, you can even research it online and it's like, okay, make sure you cook your wild game to a well done to make sure it kills everything. It was like, well, you just killed the game. That's, that's what you did. You just completely destroyed it. Um, you know, really the venison is, again, it should be treated as far as like prepping, like cook time and um, temperatures and stuff the same as uh, beef beef and lamb now where you get into the differences of the beef is for one the uh, marbling the tenderness of the beef you're going to have more tender meat from beef than you will from venison but that's just because there's not a lot of fat on the venison so you're going to have a little bit of a tougher cut but you just got to kind of understand that that's part of the meat itself it's not anything wrong with it it's not that you did anything wrong with the processing but venison is a little bit tougher now seasoning again is something I simply I'm a salt and pepper kind of guy uh, I, I think that you know the meat should be the focal point of the dish not the seasoning so um, I'll do salt and pepper on the venison I'll cook it to about a medium rare medium for the kids and um, if I want to add any extra flavors, I'll make a pan sauce. You know, I'll do like, um, you know, make stock with the bones and bring that down to a demi and then use that with a red wine sauce or a mushroom sauce or something along those lines. Um, you know, a bourbon mushroom cream is always good. You know, so it's just getting the flavors with the uh, venison and really the way that I age it um, and the way that I process it. I've given people venison and beef side by side, and it was hard for them to really tell the difference. Yeah, when it comes to like spices and stuff, I mean, the only time I'm using anything other than salt and pepper is if I have a very specific recipe I want to try, mm -hmm. right? Like asabuco or something yep. like that, you know, that then we're going to add other flavors to it because that's just a very specific recipe. Yep. Um, you know, when it comes to roasts or something like that, like if you're going to throw something in the oven, um, what's your, or in the crock pot, uh, you know, what's your method for that? Like, why, why is it important? And I guess I'm looking for a specific answer here. Why <laughs> is it important uh, for some of the cuts to be put in, cooked in that situation, as opposed to, you know, just throwing it on the grill or, um, on the on the cooktop yeah no definitely so uh, i mean with with those tougher cuts more active cuts um the shoulders the 
the parts of the back end uh, of the animal. I mean, those are just, they're very strenuous and chewy cut. So you, you're going to have to put them in a slower uh, cooking process to break down those fibers to where it's actually going to be palatable and you're not going to sit there chewing on it for days on end trying to get it uh, broken up so you can swallow it. So really with those, um, the best method that I found, and you can probably attest to this too, Jason, is that when you're doing a roast, instead of just throwing it in the crock pot, covering it with vegetables and liquid and letting it cook that way, you're better off to season it up, salt and pepper, throw it in a pan, sear it on all sides. What that does is it's going to lock your juices of that meat in there a little bit better than if it would just throwing it in there. You're going to get a better flavor and a better texture from it as well. And um, you can use those pan drippings to throw back into the crock pot as well. So just make sure you sear the meat before you throw it into a crock pot or throw it into the uh, uh, oven and roast it. It's definitely going to make a world of difference. Yeah, and I would also encourage everyone to, um, I'm not going to say throw away your crock pot because crock pots are great, um, but I would implore everyone to stop cooking wild game meats in the crock pot. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because one of my favorite cuts uh, outside of backstrap, you know, tenderloins, that kind of stuff. My, one of my favorite cuts to eat on a deer is the neck roast which is so tough. I mean, you look at it and you're like, why would anyone want to eat this unless it's ground down, right? Um, But when you cook it low and slow in a lot of liquid, it just fall apart tender. That connective tissue that's in there turns into a jelly that just makes everything so silky. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first time I tried tried to make it, I put it in the crock pot. And it was no good. I mean, I cooked it on low for like 10 hours and it was, it, it was edible, but it was not good. And it got me thinking, uh, I started actually testing the temperature of a crock pot when it's on, when it's off and the temperature fluctuates so much and it heats yeah. up really hot and then cools down for a long period of time. Uh, so now anytime that I'm doing any kind of crock pot recipe with venison, uh, I'm using a Dutch oven and I'm putting it in the oven because that has a more consistent temperature. I can keep the temperature of that oven at 180 and cook a neck roast for eight or 10 hours. And it is just fall apart tender and so much better than if I throw it in the crock pot where that temperature is going to fluctuate between 200 and 225 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely with the crock pot, and I agree with Jason on this one. I'm not a fan of crock pots. Honestly, I think I've used a crock pot two or three times in my life. Um, my, my, my wife really loves her Instapot, which, you know, that, that's a pretty good, that's a little bit better than the regular crock pot, but still I find that no matter what you put in there, whether it's meat or potatoes or anything, you get like a metallic flavor. And I think that's from the fluctuation of uh, the heat and not being a consistent temperature. If you put it in the oven, you're going to get such a better flavor. And with the Dutch ovens, I mean, those things are just absolutely amazing and they're just, uh, everyone should own one at least one. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you know, searing the meat. I mean, you can do it right there in the Dutch oven. Uh, mm-hmm. and then I'll, after I get all sides, I take the meat out. Uh, I'll, when I throw just a little bit of the stock in just to, and scrape off those pan drippings a little bit, yep. put the meat back in, put everything else in that I'm going to put in there. Sometimes it's veggie. Sometimes it's just the meat itself. Uh, and then just let it go in the oven. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful, wonderful results that doesn't take any more effort really, you know, mm-hmm. than the crock pot. It's just you're using the oven in, instead of the crock pot. Um, you know, one of the big selling points of the health aspect of venison 
is that, and, and all wild game meat, is that it has a low fat content compared yeah. to store-bought. Um, but that can be a detriment to cooking, right? Uh, because fat is sort of like the great equalizer, I feel like, for cooks to, that cook meat, uh, for anyone that's cooking meat. Uh, it sort of gives you some wiggle room to um, not completely dry out the meat uh, or make it super tough. So when it comes to that, uh, other than just being very careful of the temperature we're cooking the meat at and cooking it to and not overcooking it, is there anything we can do or that you would recommend to help keep that meat sort of regulated or help to get the caramelization, you know, that Maillard reaction around the outside of the meat? Um, are you in the camp of adding no fat or, you know, let the wild game speak for itself? Or is it okay to add a little bit of fat when we're, when we're cooking the meat? Oh, it's, it's definitely okay to add a little bit of fat. So what I would recommend though, is if you're going to add fat to such a lean organic style meat is make sure you get fat from a local farmer, uh, something that hasn't been processed, something that hasn't been uh, run from the other side of the country over to you uh, that you have no idea how old it is or how long it's been there um, or what they've done to that animal. So just make, you know, get a good relationship with local farmers in your area and, you know, get whether it's, I, I like pork fat. So, I mean, uh, even bacon, I, I did one recipe to where I put a uh, back loin from the venison on the Traeger and I slow cooked that for probably six hours, I think, but I took bacon and stuffed it into four different slits with that. And then I stuffed that with garlic, sage and truffle butter and I let that cook. Yeah, it, it was phenomenal. Absolutely delicious. But it, it definitely gave a little bit more of, um, uh, I, I guess, a tender note to it, but also added some of that smoked flavor with it as well from the bacon. Yeah, I mean, there are some people out there uh, that are hardcore about, hey, this is wild game meat. Don't contaminate it. Little air quote there, contaminate <laughs> yeah, it contaminate. With, with domestic fats or meats. Um, mm -hmm. You know, hopefully um if people don't already know this we, we, this will open some eyes you, you really can't use the fat on deer to cut into your ground meat or to cook with it leaves a waxy texture mm -hmm. on your tongue and in your mouth uh, it's tallow it's not fat yep. uh so you know i mean in, in the perfect world if you know i would shoot a couple deer and a bear every year and i would use that bear grease as the fat and it, everything yep. would be wild um i've never shot a bear uh, so, and I don't foresee myself shooting one every year. Right. So sometimes you need to sort of take a little bit of shortcuts and I'm with you. Um, you know, that, that pork fat, uh, locally sourced, you know, it's going to provide you with the flavor. It's going to provide you, um, with that little bit of extra that's, that's going to be absolutely wonderful texture. Uh, I've already alluded to one of my favorite recipes, which is a neck roast. Uh, do mm -hmm. you have any favorite recipes that you're big on? Oh boy. Um, there's so many, so many different ones that I really enjoy, but I would, I would have to say probably my favorite one is the one that I mentioned to you just a minute ago is the one that I did on slow smoke or slow cook on the Traeger. Um, just a basic loin roast from the back end and stuffing it with the bacon and garlic sage and uh, truffle butter. I mean, it, it just turned out absolutely phenomenal. And you can, again, add that with a uh, bourbon garlic cream sauce over underneath it or on top of it 
and uh, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, when you were explaining that, man, it, it's like, man, this that sounds so good. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a picture of what it looked like, and uh, uh, you can see. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll talk a little later. I I have a smoker as well, so we'll talk a little later. Yeah, about maybe yeah, trading definitely. trading some more recipes. You know, Paul, thanks for coming on. Um, I really appreciate this. Uh, real quick for everyone. How can they find out more information about Sizzling Arrow Outdoors and, you know, your podcast and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. So um, you can find, best way to connect with me really is through our website, which is www.sizzlinarrow.com. And, you know, it's got a lot of great information on there, blogs, write-ups, reviews. Um, and it's got my email, phone number, all that good stuff. So you can connect with me through that um i can be found on pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts apple spotify pandora uh sizzling arrow outdoors podcast um instagram facebook uh youtube i'm on there at sizzling arrow so you can check that out and i actually have a fabrication video of how to skin out and kind of take out the back straps of a deer that we got up in michigan so um you can check that out if you're interested in that too Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on and uh, good luck this week with your mentors. Hey, thanks, Jason. I appreciate it, man. We got a couple big ones out there that we're looking to knock down. So hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> good luck to you, man. All right. Thanks, buddy. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild go visit today and become a sponsor that'll do it for this episode thank you for listening thank you to paul for coming on this was a great conversation this is something that we could have gone on for hours and hours about just the, the cooking of venison. And then of course, other wild game as well. Uh, I would uh, definitely say that we will be revisiting this topic, uh, sharing some more tips and do's and don'ts. And then also talking about some other sources of wild game, more so than just venison. Uh, we just sort of wanted to focus on really the one type of game that is most pursued in the United States. Uh, Make sure you check in the episode description. Check out the links that are provided there. Uh, check out Sizzling Arrow Outdoors. Uh, he, you know, Paul's doing some great work with that. Uh, and give Sizzling Arrow's Outdoor Podcast a listen. The shameless plug back in early November, I was a guest on his podcast. So a little shameless plug there, but give it a listen. It's another great podcast. If you enjoy this one, you're going to enjoy that one. And speaking of enjoying this podcast, if you enjoy it, you want to support it, you want to support the nonprofit status that we are seeking for Conserve the Wild, make sure you click that link to visit our Patreon page. There's a little bit of swag that you'll receive based on your support level. 
Lastly, same as every episode, get outside, take someone with you, and always stay wild.